Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, June 27th, 2022. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, are we in for the biggest deluge in new Apple products maybe ever? Why, though, are the new MacBook Pros with M2 chips sporting slower SSD drives? Is your phone plan about to get more expensive? Are VCs actually cutting back on their investments? How much should we worry about Tether and something something? Are DAOs really that decentralized? Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. What if we're about to enter one of the most ambitious periods for Apple ever, at least in terms of new products? That's the bold claim that Mark Gurman made in his weekly newsletter over the weekend, quote, From what I've been told, the company is about to embark on one of the most ambitious periods of new products in its history, with the deluge coming between the fall of 2022 and the first half of 2023. The new products will include four iPhone 14 models, three Apple Watch variations, several Macs with M2 and M3 chips, the company's first mixed-reality headset, low-end and high-end iPads, updated AirPods Pro earbuds, a fresh HomePod, and an upgraded Apple TV. The announcements at WWDC give us a bit of a preview of what to expect, including how the new software and hardware will tie together. Let's start with the iPhone. The main new feature at first previewed here before iOS 16 was announced is the revamped lock screen. The company has been working on this interface for a couple years, and it makes sense to release it now because the lock screen works hand-in-hand with a new feature on the upcoming iPhone 14 Pro models and always-on display. Like the Apple Watch, the iPhone 14 Pro will be able to show widgets displaying weather, calendars, stocks, activities, and other data, while the screen remains at a low brightness and frame rate. And there will be a setting, also like the Apple Watch, that keeps sensitive data from appearing on the lock screen for all to see. Other new iPhone Pro features include a much-improved front-facing camera, a new rear camera system that includes a 48-megapixel sensor, thinner bezels, a faster A16 chip, and a redesigned notch with a pill-shaped cutout for Face ID, and a hole punch for the camera. The Pro phones, codenamed D73 and D74, will be the big iPhone story this year, with the non-Pro iPhone 14 models D27 and D28 generating less excitement. The lower-end phones will stick with the same A15 chip as the iPhone 13, though the 5.4-inch mini size will be replaced with a 6.7-inch model. All of this year's new iPhones will continue to use Lightning to charge the battery, but I expect a transition to USB-C to happen in 2023. Speaking of USB-C, a new low-end iPad with an A14 chip and 5G, as first reported by 9to5Mac, is due this fall with that more powerful connector, I'm told. I expect Apple to release new 11-inch and 12.9-inch iPad models with M2 chips later this year that work with Stage Manager. They're codenamed J617 and J620. That will let Apple say it has five different iPads that support the interface versus three today, the current M1 iPad Pros and iPad Air. I also expect Apple to release an iPad with a bigger display sometime in the next year or two between 14 and 15 inches. Stage Manager could make more sense on a device that size. The new M2 chip, part of the MacBook Air and 13-inch MacBook Pro announced at WWDC and optimized with macOS Ventura, is also the core of several other products in the pipeline. Those are likely to come in much quicker succession than the M1-based Macs did. Here are the M2 Macs I'm told to expect beyond the first two, an M2 Mac Mini, an M2 Mac an M2 Pro Mac Mini, M2 Pro, and M2 Max 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros, and the M2 Ultra and M2 Extreme Mac Pro. 
outside of the Mac and iPad Pro. There's another place I expect the M2 to appear, Apple's Mixed Reality Headset. I'm told the latest internal incarnations of the device run the base M2 chip along with 16 gigabytes of RAM. And speaking of WWDC, there were plenty of software-related hints there about the headset's operating system, Reality OS, and its features. Apple is also already at work on the M2 successor, the M3, and the company is planning to use that chip as early as next year with updates to the 13-inch MacBook Air, codenamed J513, a 15-inch MacBook Air known as J515, a new iMac, codenamed J433, and possibly a 12-inch laptop that's still in early development. The other major announcement this year at WWDC was WatchOS 9. That update certainly heralds what we can expect from the Apple Watch Series 8 this fall. As I've reported, Apple is preparing three new variations, a new low-end SE, a standard Series 8, and a rugged edition aimed at extreme sports. For those hoping for a faster chip in this year's Apple Watch, I'm told the S8 chip will have the same specifications as the S7, which was also the same as the S6. Next year's models, however, are slated to get an all-new processor, end quote. But if you, like me, are waiting for those new M2 MacBook Airs to ship, please take note of this. SSD benchmarks show the 256GB 13-inch MacBook Pro model, which did get the M2 chip, has around 50% slower read and 30% slower write speeds than the previous 256GB MacBook Pro with M1 chips. Quoting Mac Rumors, Yuriev disassembled the new 13-inch MacBook Pro and discovered that the 256GB model is equipped with only a single NAND flash storage chip, whereas the previous model had two chips that are likely 128GB each. This difference likely explains why the new model has a slower SSD, as multiple NAND chips allows for faster speeds in parallel. It appears that only the base model 13-inch MacBook Pro with M2 chip has the slower SSD. As noted in the Mac Rumors forums, Aaron Zola ran the disk speed test app on the 512 gigabyte model, and the SSD's read-write speeds were similar to all M1 models, but getting these speeds will require spending at least $1,499. This likely means that the 512 gigabyte model remains equipped with two 256-gigabyte flash storage chips. It's unclear why the new base model 13-inch MacBook Pro is only equipped with a single chip, but costs and or supply constraints are two possible factors. We've reached out to Apple for comment and we'll update the story if we hear back. Slower SSD speeds can impact common tasks such as transferring files to an external drive, and overall performance can also take a slight hit since Macs temporarily use SSD space as virtual memory when physical RAM is fully used. If you are considering the new 13-inch MacBook Pro and faster SSD speeds are important to you, we recommend ordering a model with at least 512 gigabytes of storage, or better yet, wait for the new MacBook Air in July, end quote. Maybe on a future space at some point, we can discuss why I recently switched my phone carrier to Verizon after spending 20 years with AT&T and Singular before that. But the Wall Street Journal notes that AT&T and Verizon have both raised the cost of some monthly and older mobile phone plans, while T-Mobile has largely kept most rates flat. Quote, AT&T 
starting in June, raised the cost of its older wireless plans by up to $6 for single lines and $12 for family plans, encouraging subscribers to adopt newer unlimited data plans. Verizon later matched AT&T with a $6 or $12 monthly price increase on its metered data plans. It also raised some monthly fees on consumer wireless plans by $1.35 and levied a monthly per smartphone fee of up to $2.20 on many business plans. T-Mobile has seized on its rival's price increases to burnish its lower-cost reputation, calling the decisions insensitive to overburdened consumers. Many T-Mobile rates are frozen anyway under a regulatory agreement tied to its 2020 takeover of Sprint, though the company can still revise fees. The company in February raised monthly fees on some older plans by up to $0.31. T-Mobile said its fees will affect a smaller share of its customers. The company is meanwhile adding new perks to its most expensive consumer and business plans to convince customers to upgrade their service. New offerings include high-speed data service in more than 200 countries and free Wi-Fi on Alaska, American, and Delta flights. What we're doing is dramatically different, T-Mobile marketing chief Mike Kretz says in a recent interview. Verizon is also so far the only wireless carrier to raise fees on a plan advertised today. Most other rate increases have hit cheaper plans no longer offered to new customers, end quote. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months, or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride.
Real quick from the This Stuff is Getting Real file, according to CB Insights, global VC investment activity dropped 23% between Q1 and Q2 of 2022, through June 23rd, by the way, after dropping just 1.4% between Q4 and Q1, quoting Bloomberg. Deal activity across the globe dropped 23% between the first quarter and second quarter of this year, the firm found, using data for the second quarter through June 23rd. That's a stark contrast to the previous quarter, where the deal count dropped only 1.4%, and an indication that the roiling of the crypto and public markets are affecting private companies. Investors are not just writing fewer checks, but also smaller ones. The total funding amount going to startups for the current quarter to date dropped 27% compared to the first quarter. Those numbers are likely to change before the second quarter is officially over in a week, but the drop appears to be more severe than the 19% CB Insights had predicted just a month ago. Late-stage companies are getting squeezed particularly hard. Funding in Series D rounds or beyond dropped 43%. By early 2022, so many companies were raising at valuations of $1 billion or more that a new unicorn company was minted about twice a day. Over the past three months, however, the number of deals and the total funding raised have dropped to their lowest levels since late 2020, end quote. Here's something else to really keep your eye on if you're in the crypto space. As crypto markets continue to wobble, hedge funds are apparently increasingly shorting Tether, either as a bet against the broader economy or just the quality of Tether's assets. Quote, Tether is a stablecoin, which are virtual currencies that are supposed to be pegged to the dollar or other national currencies, and it is the most widely traded in the world. Tether's market cap stood at about $67 billion on Friday, according to coin market cap data. In the past month, more traditional hedge funds have executed trades to short Tether through Genesis Global Trading, one of the largest crypto brokerages for professional investors. These trades are worth hundreds of millions of dollars in notional value, said Leon Marshall, Genesis's head of institutional sales. He declined to be more specific. A number of investors have been betting against Tether for at least 12 months, but more hedge funds got interested in shorting Tether after the collapse in May of another stablecoin, TerraUSD, according to Genesis. Some hedge funds are shorting Tether as a bet about the broader economy. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to curb 40-year high inflation, scaring investors away from riskier assets, including cryptocurrencies. Other hedge funds are concerned about the quality of the assets backing Tether. Tether says it maintains an equivalent amount of reserves that include commercial paper or corporate short-term loans, bank deposits, precious metals, government bonds, and digital tokens. Some short sellers say they believe that most of Tether's commercial paper holdings are backed by debt-ridden Chinese property developers, the Wall Street Journal previously reported. Tether said in a blog post this month that, quote, these rumors are completely false, end quote. The company added that it has been reducing its portfolio of commercial paper. Tether's market cap has been declining since it briefly lost its $1 peg. It is down about $16 billion in market cap since a peak on May 5th, according to coin market cap data, end quote. I've heard for years whispers that Tether blowing up is a serious sort of nuclear fear For the entire crypto ecosystem, I don't know enough about the space to be certain, but from what I understand, you know, crypto's already lost two-thirds of its market value, so if Tether were to run into trouble, especially now, it would basically be Katie bar the door. Finally today, sort of related, but an analysis of 10 major DAO governance tokens done by Chainalysis found, on average... Less than 1% of all holders of DAO tokens 
have 90% of the voting power. So, decentralized how, again? Quote, This has meaningful implications for DAO governance. For example, if just a small portion of the top 1% of holders work together, they could theoretically outvote the remaining 9% on any decision. This has obvious practical implications and, in terms of investor sentiment, likely affects whether smallholders feel that they can meaningfully contribute to the proposal process. For a governance token holder, there are three key governance actions. Voting is simple. Any holder can do it. But what about creating a proposal? And what about passing it? Per these 10 DAOs proposal requirements, we found that a user must hold between 0.1% and 1% of the outstanding token supply to create a proposal. A user must hold between 1% and 4% to pass it. Using these ranges as lower and upper bounds, we found that between 1 and 1,000 and 1 in 10,000 of these 10 DAOs holders have enough tokens to create a proposal. There are several trade-offs at play here. If too many holders can create a proposal, the average proposal's quality may fall, and the DAO may be riddled with governance spam. But if too few can, the community may come to feel that decentralized governance rings false. When it comes to single-handedly passing a proposal, between 1 and 10,000 and 1 and 30,000 holders have enough tokens to do so. Overly concentrated voting power in DAOs can result in decision-making that seemingly contradicts the tenets of decentralization on which Web3 is built. For instance, in June, the DAO governing the Solana-based lending protocol Solend faced a problem. Solana's price was dropping, and if it fell too much further, the protocol's biggest whale user would face a margin call that could render Solend insolvent and send roughly $20 million worth of Solana into the market, potentially tanking the asset's price and upending the entire Solana ecosystem. The DAO called a vote to take control of the whale's account and liquidate its positions through OTC desks rather than the open market. The proposal passed easily with over 1.1 million yes votes to 30,000 no votes. However, more than 1 million of those votes came from a single user with enormous governance token holdings. Without their vote, the motion wouldn't have passed the 1% participation rate necessary for quorum. The decision triggered a backlash from the cryptocurrency community, with many questioning how a platform could claim to be decentralized and then take control of a user's funds against their will. Following this, the Solend DAO voted again to invalidate the proposal, and the whale user eventually began to unwind their position. While the crisis was averted in this case, it raises questions about the ability of a DAO to act in the best interest of all participants when some voters control such an outsized share of governance tokens." End quote. Nothing for you today other than I did a bad thing over the weekend and got hooked on a game of Crusader Kings 3 once again, so now all my free time is gobbled up by trying to keep my Kingdom of Brittany together, even though it's mostly the Kingdom of England, just with the Breton Peninsula still there at the bottom. We're going to try to explore and maybe get some territory in Aquitaine this afternoon, I think. Anyway, talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>